6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. And the whole idea is that the reconciliation comes from God. God only God is capable of providing that reconciliation and by paying the price for us. And that's a very fundamental concept. You want to really understand the Epistle of Romans, which is perhaps the classic treatise on that whole issue. So this introduction uh, is brief, but it's rich and gracious and pitches the letter at once on a high plane. Just an introduction very quickly. Here we are in the first verse, but it moves this whole thing to a very, very high plane. So Paul continues, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Thanksgiving. It was a priority for Paul, and it was a continual with Paul. And the plural here implies that all three missionaries prayed together. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy didn't do it. They did it together. And we give thanks in everything. That's in many of Paul's letters again and again. It's been said that the Spirit of Christ is the oil that feeds the lamp of praise. Indeed. How we should pray, and if you can't, if nothing else is on your heart, just praise Him uh, always, continually. And you can't begin to exhaust the list of things that we should praise Him for. But it's interesting, you know, I want you to notice all through this letter the affection that he has for the Thessalonians. He tried several t- twice to return, but there's always hinder- hindrance. He wanted desperately to come back and be back with these young converts. And so here is a key verse, verse 3. Paul says, remembering without ceasing, wow, three things, your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. These three graces would also be featured later in several of Paul's writings, including the Corinthian letter. The work of faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. This is a a very, very fundamental uh, trilogy that will occupy us as we go through this letter here. The work of faith. We're talking about faith, not works. As, and don't confuse works here with fruit bearing. Our work of faith. You're, you're, you're saved by faith, not your works. But if you have faith, the fruit that you'll bear will testify of that faith. So it's, don't confuse works here in the Galatian sense of trying to earn your, your salvation. No, 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 no. Your faith will produce fruit and that fruit testifies of your works. The word works is a better term would be fruit bearing. I think it's clear what we mean here. We're justified by faith, but the faith produces works or fruit bearing. And Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 hammer that home for you if you haven't gotten into it yet. And that's exactly what John the Baptist taught. And it's also what Jesus taught, and that's what James emphasizes in his epistle, is that faith produces works. Don't confuse that with trying to earn your salvation. No, no, no. Jesus paid for the whole thing uh, 3,000 years ago on a cross. You can't add to it. That's blasphemy. But faith in that will produce fruit. 
and that fruit bearing is what we're dealing with here. The work, using the word works here in that. So there's a lot of confusion about that. The labor of love. Wow. The word agape, of course, is one of the great words of the New Testament. And the koros, the word there, labor, is a fatiguing labor to the point of weariness. Wow, do you love that much? Do you love that much that your labors, you're fatigued to the point of weariness? That's why he's saying the labor of love. Wow. And then the patience of hope. Patience in the sense of steadfastness. Active constancy in the face of difficulties. Hanging in there. Sometimes our afflictions are a test of our faith. Are you really, do you just say it or are you serious about it? That will show up as how you deal with afflictions or tribulations. You should have a patience that, ins- that is inspired by hope in the sight of God our Father. The picture here is profiled here as if it's the day of judgment when we're all going to appear before God. And these three things will be evident, of course. Faith, love, and hope. We can conjoin these or put them together, analyze this trilogy all through the epistles. Not just of Paul, but also of Peter and others. So it's a paradigm. But this sometimes helps. I like these paradigms. Faith really rests upon the past. You have faith in what has been done for you on the cross. So faith looks to the past. Love works to the present. Love is what you should be manifesting as you go continually now. And hope looks to the future. Our hope is our, our aspiration for what's coming. So faith, love, and hope are past, present, and future in their tenses here. Each one looks outward. Faith looks back to a crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. And hope looks on to a coming Savior. The church is distinguished by these three things. Faith, hope, and love. And this is incidentally characteristic of Paul's writing. If he finished a sentence, it would uh, have been complete and well designed. But he doesn't quite finish this. His thoughts continue all the way through to verse 5 and beyond. So if you really start structuring these things, they can be challenging. Because his sentences grow like living things, rather than being constrained by grammatical rules. That's what makes it so challenging to really uh, apprehend what Paul is getting across here. And sometimes Paul says, finally, my brethren, and all that means you only have a few chapters to go yet. Paul says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Oh, here's that term. For first of all, brethren... See, your bre- the reason you use the word brethren is because you're born into that relationship. When you have a brother, that's not something you had a choice over. That was somebody that was born in your family. He's a, he's a sibling in the fleshly sense. But also in the spiritual sense, he's a brother because you're both born into God's family. That word has a lot of meaning there. And Paul uses that word 60 times. 14 times in the first Thessalonians, 7 times in the second letter. Interesting, it's always a multiple of seven. That's the heptatic structure, and I won't start on that one right now. Your election of God. Here's that word. It's not in the Septuagint. It's only seven times in the New Testament. Always of God's choice of men. It's a uniquely New Testament term here. It's a Greek term, but you don't find it in the Old Testament translation. You do find it seven times in the New Testament. There's that seven again, interestingly enough. And of course, speaks of divine election. In the Old Testament, it was national election. It was the nation Israel that was elected. In the New Testament, the term is used of an individual and personal and spiritual election. When did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world. When is that evident in your life? When you were called. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
We'll move on here. Love and election are connected in 2 Thessalonians. We'll deal with that there more. Election prevents us from thinking of salvation as dependent on human whims, and it roots it squarely in the will of God. If you are in Christ, if you've accepted Christ, it's because of God's initiative. He gets the credit. You don't. It wasn't that you were brilliant. No, 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 no. You're responding to his initiative. And the concept of election protects us from thinking of it as anything we did. No, it's what God did. God has elected you. He's chosen you. He's brought you into his family. Boy, that makes it precious. But it also means that we should have assurance, not presumption, holiness, not moral apathy. You're called to holiness. We're going to talk about that. It's humility, not pride. You have nothing to be proud of. God did it all. It's his witness, not our lazy selfishness, if you will. If left to ourselves, we do not wish to leave our state of untroubled sinfulness. If it was left up, we would stay in sin. No, no, he's called us out of that. He's brought us up out of that pit, if you will. So when did God first start dealing with you? Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, precious verse. You were not an afterthought. He had you on his mind before the whole drama began. I love what Wilbur Smith says. He says, I'm glad he chose me back then. He might now change his mind if he saw me today. And of course, he's being facetious here. Knowing the election of God. How do you know the election of God? Because their lives evidenced it. How do you know you're saved? Look at the fruit you're bearing. If you're bearing fruit, that's evidence of your salvation. If you're not bearing fruit, that's something you need to deal with. And uh, he says to all of Macedonia, he says, you, not your words, you are your witness. See, the church is God-centered. It's chosen by him. It's rooted in him. And it's drawing his life from him. It exhibits his life in his faith, a faith that works in a love that labors, and a hope which endures. There's that echo of that paradigm that, uh, paradigm again. Faith is past, love is present, hope is future. That's the paradigm. Faith, love, and hope. So Paul continues, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. See, Paul had a definite message of grace that he preached everywhere, including Thessalonica. This very word was later applied to the books about Jesus, but Paul is not using the term here or anywhere else. Our gospel. That's the term he's using here. Words and power of the Holy Spirit. We must never divorce what God has married, namely his word and his spirit. You can't separate those two. They're together. He himself is given the Holy Spirit to perform his sanctifying works in their lives, to ignore and inhibit his manifestations. We call it quenching the Spirit. We'll be talking more about that as we get further in this epistle. The Spirit without the Word is weaponless, but the Word without the Spirit is powerless. You can't separate those two. The Word and the Spirit. And that's where we got our logo for Koinia House. The intent was the Word and the Spirit bonded together, if you will. So, Of course, there were oppositions here and and in Berea in Acts 17. Affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, Paul. What about us? Are we going to have afflictions? Count on it. He says, As ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. In much affliction. The authentic gospel 
always arouses hostility because it challenges human pride and self-indulgence. And that's one of the paradoxes that plague the pulpits even today. How much more fun it is, how much more uh, common it is to, to not hurt the feelings of your parishioners. The authentic gospel always arouses hostility. Why? Because it challenges human pride and self-indulgence. It takes guts, backbone, courage for a minister to preach the word. And that's one of the beauties of a, of a program where the minister takes the congregation through the whole Bible and preaches. They have a, a, a reading program for the congregation and each Sunday sermon is taken from that week's reading. And it's expositional. And that, that, in effect, maps God's agenda for that congregation. Now here, of course, they did that. There was, of course, opposition, even in the form of riots, both in Thessalonica and in Berea. He speaks of affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So how about us? Is it coming? Absolutely. How? How do they deal with this? So that we were examples to all that believe in Macedonia. Okay, see, their lives evidenced it. See, you, not your words, are your witness. Your witness aren't words, it's your life. To be examples. The very word is tupon, which means type, if you will. It actually meant the, it's the mark left by a blow. Like when a die stamps on a coin, stamping on the coin. That's what the word really meant. But that's your mark on the people around you, is your life, your conduct. Now, of course, there's a corporate blessing here. He had the right perspective. The blessing of God was evident in the work he was doing. But it's also a personal blessing. It's proof of a healthy Christian life when it becomes an example to others. So your example is corporate in terms of what other people see, but it's also proof of your own life when it becomes an example to others. Anyway, moving on. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. So that we need not to speak anything. And so sound it out. See, Macedonia and Achaia were at the northern and southern provinces into which the Romans divided the ancient land of the Greeks. Together, they represent what we would call together Greece. Now the word echo is uh, from echoes, a loud noise, trumpet, and so forth. Their word of mouth was more powerful than any media blitz. The word of mouth is always the most effective form of communication. Continuing, he said, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how we, ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Turned to God from idols. This is why we know this was primarily a Gentile church here. This idea of turn means a radical change of allegiance. It isn't just a mind thing, it's a commitment thing. And uh, that's what happened in Lystra in Acts 14, and Athens in Acts 17, and Thessalonica. You see, you need to realize Mount Olympus, which was the sacred mountain to the, to the Athenians, was only about 50 miles south of their city. They turned from idols. What is an idol? It's a God substitute. Anything that stands between you and God is an idol. What are your idols? You know, idol doesn't have to be some kind of figurine that you bow down before. No, no, no. That's only one form. An idol is anything that gets between you and God. Okay, is that your work? Is the work you do more important than God? Like your career? Is that more important to you than your relationship with God? Think about it. Sports. For many people, that tends to become an idol. 
if it gets between you and your commitment to the God, the living God of the universe. How about patriotism? How about your commitment to the government, to the country? That can be important, and yet, can that get in the way? When I was in the Boy Scouts, it was God and country. You didn't have to choose between them. That's not the situation today. You've got some very, very tough decisions to discern and resolve, every one of us. Serve, then wait, Paul says. To serve, he means as a slave, the living and active, true, real, genuine God. That's the calling, is to serve the living God. So you're going to, as a Christian, you begin a new life of service, service to Him. Every idolater is a prisoner held in humiliating bondage because we become like the gods we worship. There's several times in the Psalms, it emphasized that. We become like the gods we worship. Scary stuff. Is the world cold, materialistic, unforgiving? Absolutely. If you worship the world, you will become cold, materialistic, and unforgiving. And we go through the whole list of things, alternatives. That's why it's so important to worship Christ as God, because then we become like Him. Salvation does not begin by giving up something, but by receiving someone. Have you received Christ? It's not what church you belong to. It's not what Bible verses you've memorized. No, no, no. What is your relationship with the person of Jesus Christ? Have you discovered Him? Do you know Him? Is there communion with Him? Do you spend time with Him every day? That's what this is all about. Now, the prophetic hope drives one to to personal holiness and evangelism. If you realize He's coming back, and He's coming back to take over, the idea is to have a personal relationship with Him and also to be serving Him now. Let's move on here to verse 10. And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Wow, to wait for His Son from heaven. Are you waiting for His Son from heaven? Or is that an abstraction to you somehow? See, we have a sustained expectation. This is the most frequently mentioned doctrine in the New Testament. One out of every 13 verses in the New Testament focus on this this sustained expectation to wait for His Son from heaven. Setting aside the details for the moment, that expectation should motivate us. Changes our life. The hope of the second coming of Christ was real and powerful with Paul, and it should be with us. Now, it was subject to abuse even then, and Paul is going to show this in this very letter and clarify a lot of misconceptions about that as we go. That's one reason this letter is going to end up being so personal. So, so, so relevant to, e- to every one of us. He alludes to this hope, the blessed hope, at the close of each chapter in this epistle. So that's what it's really all about. It's a motivational thing. This isn't an abstract, uh, an abstract doctrine that different people might have different views on. No, no, no. You need to have an expectation of His return that should be the driving priority in your life. Everything you do should be prioritized in the light of waiting for His return, expecting His return. Whom He raised from the dead. Why is that so important? Paul gloried in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, of which fact he was himself a personal witness. What do you mean? Absolutely. He was a personal witness. He met the risen Lord on the Damascus Road, and that changed his life irrevocably from that moment on to the end. 
And this, this fact was the foundation stone for all his theology, and it comes out in this first chapter. The resurrection of Christ is the validation that his sacrifice was adequate to pay the price for you and me. Wow. Which delivered us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath to come, by the way. One of the great tragedies in our culture is the absence of the fear of God. The Puritans that founded this country had a fear of God. The culture in general in the 17th, 18th, even good part of the 19th century. The, the average person may not know a lot, may not believe in a lot, but he had in his gut a fear of the living God. There are mafia bosses that wouldn't harm a priest or a nun because the religious know, but they somehow knew in their uh, heart of hearts that you don't want to cross those lines somehow. God-fearing. We used to use that term. Is so-and-so God-fearing? That's the great tragedy today to look at our leadership. How many of our leadership are really God-fearing in the true sense? They may not agree with us on a lot of doctrinal issues, but are they God-fearing? See, there is a wrath to come. God is a God of holiness, and God is a God of wrath. There's this widespread liberal view that, well, God, there was no hell because there wouldn't, you know, a loving God couldn't have. No, that, those are all ways of blaspheming the reality of a holy God. And we need to understand what He has revealed of Himself to us in His Word. He delivered us from the wrath to come. That's precious, but in our embracing of that deliverance, let's not lose sight of the fact that He did deliver us from a wrath which is coming. And it's the historic, crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus Christ, God's Son, who delivers us from that wrath. That wrath is real, and the historic, crucified, risen, and ascended Christ is real. He's alive and real, and He's coming to take over. He's our Savior, and true to His name, Jesus, which means Savior. Now, it was Paul's allusion to the day of judgment with Jesus' judge, whom God had raised from the dead, that made the Athenians mock and leave Him. They listened to his speech, doing great. He's quoting these Greek sources, and he had the until he got to this issue that there's a day of judgment coming, that Jesus was the judge that God had raised from the dead. When they heard that, ooh, they, they, that, that turned them away. And that will today too. That will divide people. There's some that will embrace that and they'll be saved. The ones that reject that are choosing a path. You know, it's interesting. Some theologians will say there's no one in hell that's going to be there because of their sin. They'll be there for having rejected the provision God made for their sin. Who? See, Paul did not change his belief or his preaching because of the conduct of the Athenians. He was certain that God's wrath in due time will punish sin. You know, Paul never did a, a market survey, what kind of messages really grew the church better. Nonsense. That was God's problem. The last verse of Acts chapter 2, where the Acts 2 is where the church is born. The last verse is God added to the church daily such as that should be saved. That's God's problem. Your problem is to declare his truth. Paul never changed his belief or his preaching because of the conduct of his audience. No. Because he knew God's wrath would take care of that one way or the other. And that's a lesson we need to know today. And it was coming then and it's coming now. His wrath is still forthcoming here. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God against that which is a contradiction of His holiness. God can't go against His own nature, and His nature is holy. 
But God brings us completely out of the reach of future judgment by seeing us in Christ. Now, verses 9 and 10 of this chapter are the fullest account of Christian conversion in the New Testament. A decisive break with idols, turning to faith, an active service of God, a fruit of love, in other words, fruit bearing is part of it, and a patient waiting for His coming, the blessed hope. Three things, the past, faith, the present, active service continuing right now, active love, a fruit of love, and looking ahead to the blessed hope is coming. Those are the three basic elements of the Christian conversion. And you won't find a more concise, complete presentation of that anywhere else in the New Testament. Turned, serve, and wait. Remember verse 3 back there? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and the labor of love, the patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. His trilogy of commitment. The work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. That's it. Well, does your life manifest your election? God elected you. Is that visible in your life, or is there something that needs to be dealt with here? Is your study of the Word accompanied by the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Not Chuck Missler, not illuminated by Chuck Missler, by the Holy Spirit. Well, in our next session, we're going to see the greatest missionary manual ever written. And that's a For next time, I want you to study 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll take chapter 2 next time. And let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we just praise your name. We thank you that we were on your mind, on your heart, specifically each one of us, before the foundation of the world. Wow! That this whole drama was unveiled for our benefit. We thank you that you've gone to such extremes that we might be called to you, Father. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and your Word, that we too would bear fruit, a fruit of love, continuing as we turn from our past and embrace the present and look forward to our coming King, our blessed hope, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.